Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to the season premiere of Cape Up. Congress is back in session, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi had plenty to say about President Trump, about America's leadership role in the world, and about how the Republican president and Republican Senate she dealt with the first time as Speaker more than a decade ago are nothing like the Republican president and Republican Senate she has to deal with today. And you can hear what she has to say about all these things right now. Speaker Pelosi, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast, your first time as Speaker of the House. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. So during the recess, people think that when Congress goes on recess that you're off on vacation at the beach, but that's not the case. In your case, you were traveling around around the world. You were in Ghana. Um, was Munich um, this no, summer? No, Munich was before. I was in Ghana for the 400th anniversary of the first slaves sent to America. It was a very emotional experience. I was in a Northern Triangle in El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala to see what we could do to curtail migration to the United States and help improve the lot of people there and just learn from our own diplomats and representatives there. And then I was in, um, I was in Brest, France, for the G7 Heads of Parliament, which follows the G7 Heads of State meeting. Uh, in the meantime, between those trips, though, I was in uh, Missouri, Illinois, um, Colorado, New York, California. I was all over the United States as well. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the G7 meeting that you were a part of, because I'm curious in your, in your travels and in your conversations with, with other world leaders, what are you hearing from them about what's going on here? But these meetings are generally with a purpose, and any time I travel abroad, it's about security, it's about prosperity, global security, global prosperity, lifting up people, and it's about governance. It's about integrity and honesty and fighting corruption, et cetera, which are causes of problems globally. And so um, in this most recent, the G7, which I just got back from a couple of days ago, uh, our focus was on climate and the oceans and, and how we as multilateralists come together to work together to save the planet. There's no question, though, when you're among your uh, colleagues, other speakers, presidents of parliaments, as they mostly call them, uh, that they want to know about our country. And they're not shy about saying that they're concerned about America's, uh, shall we say, change in leadership in the world, taking responsibility for leadership in the world. And they all, all want us to know that everybody depends on the United States to being a leader in the world. I mean, in my travels, when I've gone over to, to Europe, everyone's, they ask me, what is up with this guy? <laughs> What's wrong with, you, with Americans? Are you guys going to, going to fix this? Is that the tenor of what you're hearing from your counterparts overseas? Well, I make it a practice, I always have, of never criticizing the president of the United States when I'm overseas. I save that for here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have no shyness about being on record in opposition to the policies and, uh, and the lack of values on the part of this president. However, um, overseas, I don't go to that place. And while that people know that that's probably not a conversation I'm going to pick up on, uh, they 
they may express themselves, but I don't respond to it. So it isn't, uh, uh, we don't gin up any conversation mm-hmm. about Donald Trump. But we do have concerns about many issues, including climate, that we're, we're in denial. The president said he's not going to use science as the basis for any decisions about the environment or the endangered species or climate or anything like that. That's that's strange. And so we can differentiate from the administration in terms of um, the policies of the House Democrats on those subjects. So we can disagree, but not to have a conversation about the current occupant of the White House. The other part of it, though, that I think is interesting is that uh, you know, for example, we have the issue of Afghanistan right now, and that is that uh, we all went in together. We all went in together. The NATO countries all went in together, and now the president's leaving alone. You know, it, it, he really must consult with them more, and those kinds of interactions raise questions and concern. Well, when you you bring up NATO, which anticipates a question that I was going to ask, because Article 5 of the NATO Charter, as you know, paraphrasing says, an attack on one is an attack on all. And it's only been invoked one time. And that was less than 24 hours after the attacks of September 11th in 2001. How strong is the alliance today? in essence, reflect on where the alliance is 18 years later. Well, the alliance has to be strong because it is our mutual defense. The, uh, the art, you rightly bring up Article 5. Uh, they all came to, with us into Afghanistan when we decided the country, the president decided that was the route we would go. And that's why it was so strange for this president, President Trump, to go to NATO and in front of the building there, which, by the way, has... a uh, sculptures about 9-11 on, in, on the outside of it, to go there and say uh, that he questioned our commitment uh, to Article 5 of the NATO alliance. It was, that was a stunning thing. He later kind of backed off it a bit, but that was his first statement when he was there. So it was, that was frightening. I mean, I, I, there's not, no other word I can use except frightening because it's scary that the United States would not be committed to Article 5 when everyone else was committed to it for us. NATO is strong, uh, and and uh, and then the Europeans are forming other kinds of interaction between countries and among countries of Europe to be uh, strong as well. Uh, so again, that's not menacing to us. It's encouraging. Encouraging, sure. Um, but let's say in 2020, there's a new president how much damage do you think has been done to America's leadership role in the world because of the, the statements made, the positions taken by President Trump? Well, the, you know, I see everything as an opportunity. And when we do have a new president, which I think will be in about, what, 14 and a half months <laughs> for the election and then the two months in transition, counting the days, uh, the, the, our, our relationships are strong. Our, our country is strong. It can withstand many things, at least one term. And uh, I, I, I'm not fearful that a new president will not go out there and in our national interest, in the national interest, the security interest of the United States, state the importance of multilateralism 
in all of that because it's very important. My whole basis, when I was in school, I heard John F. Kennedy's inaugural address right out here. Well, not that side. In those days, it was the east side of the Capitol a long time ago. I was a student. And in it, everybody knows that he said, the citizens of America ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Everybody knows that. But the very next sentence in his speech is what touched me as a, a... a student was, and to the citizens of the world, ask not what America can do for you, but what we can do working together for the freedom of mankind. That was the next sentence. And that, to me, is the clarion call uh, for America. What is that we can do working together? Not condescendingly, not we're in charge here, what we can do working together with respect. That's what we have to do if we're going to have peace on earth, if we're going to have uh, our military strength, of course, is one sign of our strength, the health, education, well-being of our people, another sign of our strength, our values, another sign of our strength, but we want that for other people as well. So when you're traveling overseas, I can imagine that you, given what you just said and the message that you you say um, at home and abroad, you're a reassuring presence. It it makes me think of the late Senator John McCain, who, um, after he ran for president, relished his role as the elder statesman out there. Last time I saw him was at the Brussels Forum about two years before he passed, where the folks in the room were looking to him to just as a vision of like everything, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I'm wondering, do you see yourself as sort of filling that role of the senior statesman on the globe, on the global stage, reassuring the world, especially our allies who haven't been talked to nicely of late, that the United States hasn't gone bonkers? Well, I think there are many of us uh, who have that reassuring role. I, I will say that I have worked in an interparliamentary way for years, so I know a, a, a large number of these people over a period of time. Of course, there are many new people on the scene in our country and in theirs. Uh, but um, from my earliest days in Congress, was a member of the North Atlantic Assemblies. That's the interparliamentary group of the uh, of the NATO countries. I've hosted one of the committees in uh, San Francisco as a newish member of Congress. So I have relationships there. Uh, The the McCain role was a very unique one in that uh, the times in which he participated were, uh, uh, shall we say, were questioning. There were some questions. And I I was so honored to be in in Munich this year because he always went to the Munich Security Conference. And this year they gave an award in his honor, which was lovely. Uh, he, you know, the, he he was a, a veteran. He had fought in the wars. He was a prisoner of war. He had standing that I think it's very hard for anybody to say I'm I'm filling a role that he filled. On the other hand, I think there are many of us who, uh, in our interactions with our fellow parliamentarians, in my case with the presidents of the parliaments, uh, have a responsibility to show the respect we have for their countries. Uh, the uh, recognition that we need to be multilateral in our approaches if they're going to be sustainable, and that we have one great big threat to this whole planet, and that is the climate crisis. And that's a uh, a health issue, a public health issue, 
the air with our children breathe, the water they drink. It's a jobs issue for, for us to have new green technologies to lift everyone up. It's a security issue. There's uh, droughts and floods and famine and the rest create uh, competition for habitat and resources and cause migrations that, are, that pose security problems. And it's a moral issue. We, if you believe us that I do that, this is God's creation. We have a moral responsibility to be good, uh, good uh, uh, stewards of it. If you don't share that religious point of view, everybody agrees we have a moral responsibility to future generations. So we have a difference with this president who says science has no role in our decisions on, the, on these issues. No, science has a big role in it, and I say that as a devoutly Catholic person. Uh, here they say science or faith. I say science is an answer to our prayers. So we find our common ground one way or another with our colleagues in other uh, in other countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really uh, we emphasized in this last meeting once again uh, the importance of interparliamentary interactions to save the world. Let me jump on a, a phrase you just used, and that's common ground <clears throat> to bring the conversation uh, here at home and in particularly in this building. Uh, and I'm thinking of the USMCA, which is basically NAFTA 2.0. Senator Portman wrote an op-ed in our paper calling, basically calling on you, bring USMCA to the floor for a vote. It'll be passed in the Senate and the president will sign it and it'll be a big win for workers and so on and so forth. Where, where do things stand on USMCA, and will it come up for a vote? It's curious to me that he wrote that article. Where, does he expect us to bring up a bill that is an, a treaty that is not complete, uh, that has no assurances that our workers in our country and in other countries will be respected and, and protected? Uh, does it have not, no concern about what it means in terms of the environment or no concerns and what it means in terms of enforceability and prescription drug issues. So uh, to say bring up a bill is like, what, what are you talking about? Do you know what you're talking about? What we're talking about is we're, we're trying to be on a path to yes. We have to find our common ground. But if you have a bill that is not in a treaty that's not enforceable, you're just fooling the public. You're just fooling the public. We think we can get to enforceability. It doesn't help that people say just bring up a bill because it'll pass. So the so the so the idea that you won't <laughs> so the idea that you won't bring it up is um, it's not that we're not bringing it up we'll bring it up when we when we are ready and when the bill is ready and right now we're in negotiation about enforceability I myself voted for NAFTA one mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it, it was disappointing in terms of enforceability some areas of our country benefited some areas did not. But I think if it had better enforcement in it, we would have had more benefits for more workers. Mm-hmm. I don't want to see a, a, a NAFTA 2.0, as you call it, uh, something that just drives Mexican workers into poverty as, as, as it exploits U.S. workers. We want to lift up all workers in our country and others in Canada uh, as well, when I say lift up and, and sustain uh, a level of participation uh, that has them be able to raise their families and the rest. So again, we have work to do. We are on a path. We're working to get it done. 
but I, I don't know what the point is of saying bring a bill to the floor uh, where you you don't, have not concluded the negotiations. Another area where I was thinking of common ground, and this is, gets to the larger question of can the president be trusted? Because I remember him on t- national television saying when it came to DACA, I would like to uh, bring, bring up a bill of love. He would love to pass a bill of love. That went nowhere. After Parkland, he said he wanted background checks, and that went nowhere. He renewed that call after the mass shootings in El Paso and Dayton, and he said that he wants something done that'll make everybody happy. Can't, given the track record, can he be trusted? Do you? I mean, you have to sit with him and, and negotiate things like the budget. Do you trust him to follow through on any of these things? You skip one thing. He did say after one of the gun issues with the Democrats and Republicans at the table, he said to the Republicans, we would have a gun bill except you all are afraid of the NRA. That's that's what he said. You you skip that one. I put that, I wouldn't inject that one back into the conversation uh, because he has said this over and over again. Whether or not the president can be trusted is, um, I think, a fairly... It doesn't matter. What matters is what leverage we have to ensure that something is done. Because every day that Senator McConnell holds our legislation hostage, which we passed in in February, more people die. So this isn't about trusting a president. This is about public sentiment. The public sentiment, as Lincoln said, is everything. With it, you can accomplish almost anything. Without it, practically nothing. And public sentiment, 90% of the American people support uh, common sense background checks. And he's a 10%er, I guess. I guess he's a 10%er. That has all kinds of different meanings, but I think he's a 10%er. He keeps saying, that his people keep saying, you got to protect your base. Really? So if anybody, including the President of the United States or any one of us in the Congress, thinks that our political survival is more important than the survival of these kids, that's totally wrong. None of us, no political survival is more important than the survival of the kids. And I, I get a kind of, um, I like to be passionate about what I believe in, dispassionate about how to get the job done. But every day, kids are dying in inner cities and other places in our country beyond the high profile mass murders. And why is some of this happening? Because the political survival of Senator Mitch McConnell and, and President Trump are standing in the way of our doing common sense background checks so far. And does it stand to reason that if they're going to block block you, block the nation on common sense gun, gun safety laws and gun control, that they won't stop you on other items on your agenda? Well, let me say this. We don't get anything from them that we don't negotiate for or have leverage to get because we don't have really have shared values. Uh, think of our country. God bless America. We sang it on the steps of the Capitol. What is America? America is our constitution, our separation of powers, our bill of rights, our liberties, our freedom of the press. They don't respect that. What is America? America is this land from sea to shining sea, this beautiful place, and beyond And what do they do? Degrade it. They dishonor the Constitution. They degrade our land. They denigrate our people, who we are, a nation of immigrants by and large. And uh, uh, they undermine our values. 
putting forth budget supposed to be a statement of values. They put forth a budget that is a tax bill that has 83% of the benefits going to the top 1%. And he's thinking of doing more. He, the president, is thinking of doing more. So we don't have shared values. Used to be we did, but not with this president. We don't have shared values. Or these Republicans in Congress now who kowtow to him, uh, they share his, they've not ever been, um, what, they've never been for a fair economy. They've never been for uh, honoring immigrants or LGBTQ community or women's right to choose or gun safety. Name an issue. Climate denial for decades. They've always been where he is, worse on the issues. So this isn't about a shared values situation. This is about using your leverage. Do they have something that we want? And do we have something that they want? When you were speaker the first time, President George W. Bush was in the White House. Completely different situation. And that I was going to ask you. Completely different. Between the, are there any, we know what the differences are between the, between the two presidents. Are there any similarities between the two? Now, I don't know of any, uh, because uh, President, President Bush, and I worked with both as a junior member with President Bush, senior and President Bush, they believed in governance. They believed in, in our country and that we had a, a role to play in the lives of people. How much was that role? That's the argument since the beginning of, of our, our country. But um, the, I had a massive disagreement with President Bush, George W. Bush, on the war in Iraq. Massive disagreement. It was wrong. I knew as the top Democrat on intelligence that the intelligence did not support the threat, that there was no basis of what they were telling the American people why we should go to war. So we had a very major disagreement uh, on that score. I mean, that was before I was a leader or anything. And then, um, but it, having said that, we worked together on many other issues, whether it was um, the biggest energy bill in the history of our country, the equivalent of taking millions of cars off the road, whether it was PEPFAR to help with the HIV AIDS epidemic globally, whether it was our, our tax bill, which had refundability for the poorest of America's families. Barney Frank said it was the most liberal tax bill ever passed for what it meant for poor families in America. And the list goes on. We disagreed where we disagreed. Uh, we held forth. Uh, we worked together where we could. We had a responsibility to find common ground where we could find it, stand our ground like a rock where we couldn't. But it was, it was you were dealing with a different mentality of respect for the offices that we held, the role that we played, respect for our Constitution. That's a completely different story from what is happening now. Last, last question for you. Um, you just commemorated the 400th uh, anniversary of the first slaves being brought um, to America. When I interviewed former Vice President Biden for, for the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I asked him, and this is a very provocative question. I know it is. I, I asked him if I was wrong to say, as I've had many times in print and on television, that President Trump is a racist who's implementing a white supremacist policy agenda. I asked him that question. He said no. What say you? Well, I do think he is implementing a white supremacist agenda. Whether that makes him a racist, that's a, a, another category may make him something worse than a racist. But the fact is, is that I'd like to think in a more spiritual way about our visit to Ghana. I had been there before. 
but this was the 400th anniversary, and we went through the, the door of no return. Now it's called the door of return to attract the African diaspora back. But it, um, it gives me chills to think about it. But again, um, I don't want to characterize the president for what he is or isn't. I just want to defeat him in the election. I just want to just make sure that we can reverse as soon as we possibly can some of the damage he's done to America, whether it's our values, our people, our environment, or our constitution. The darkest days of our revolution, Thomas Paine said, the times have found us. We think the times have found us now. Not to place ourselves in the category of greatness of our founders, but a sense of urgency of protecting the democracy that they fought so hard to establish, uh, to win independence and then to establish. And so um, we have a very serious responsibility because we think nothing less is at stake than the Constitution of the United States because of the disregard that this president has for it. So I just think that we, in terms of things like guns, we just as soon have, let's have a solution now. Don't let that be an issue in the campaigns. Let's have a solution now so that lives can be saved. In terms of infrastructure, let's build it now to create jobs now. Let's not have that as an issue in the campaign. In terms of health care, let's have a solution in terms of um, the cost of prescription drugs now. Let's not have that be an issue in the campaign. Uh, but the fact that it could be an issue in the campaign gives us some leverage in the conversation. Speaker Nancy Pelosi, 60th Speaker of the House and the 63rd Speaker of the House of Representatives. Thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.